ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brown. Welcome to the program. As we go to air this afternoon, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln has crossed the border and is heading across the Kimberley. It could reform later in the week and there still is a severe weather warning in place for people in parts of the Gregory and Tenamite districts. Over the last few days, this system has brought some big rain to a number of Territory cattle stations. Amazingly wet. We had um, 157 mil followed by 37 mil and it's still still raining today. Also today, you'll meet the new boss of Arafura Rare Earths and hear his plans for the Nolan's Bore project to the north of Alice Springs. And before 1.30... <laughs> a look back in time to try and find out if it's true that a famous WA pastoral property was won and lost in a game of poker. Uh, my great-grandfather was certainly a card player in um, Geraldton. It was said he could shuffle cards quicker than the shifting sands of Geraldton. you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Let's get amongst it. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. G'day to those who have downloaded the podcast. We start today's program with some good news for the NT's cattle industry. Indonesia has finally issued import permits for live cattle. The news came through on late Friday, and by Saturday, there was a ship getting loaded at Darwin Port. It's now on the water and headed towards Jakarta with stock on board. Troy Setter is the boss of the Consolidated Pastoral Company, which runs stations across the north and also some feedlots in Indonesia. He says today there's choppers in the air, trucks on the road and ships on the water as this industry gets back on track after a long delay. On uh, Friday last week, uh, the uh, Ministry of Trade started to release permits for quite a few uh, soft commodities that had been uh, held up for the last uh, six or seven weeks, uh, and we saw live cattle permits uh, be released on Friday. And how much of a relief is that for industry? I think it's quite a big relief, not just for producers and, and exporters from Australia, but also in importers in Indonesia that were starting to face a fair bit of pressure from customers that they were supplying cattle to and, and looking at them uh, having to put in uh, restrictions on sales. So everyone was quite relieved and particularly some of the live exporters have had ships with the anchor down paying to marriage in Darwin Harbour that uh, is very expensive. Well, I think... The Brahman Express, for example, I feel like it's been anchored off Darwin for three weeks or so now. Someone's paying for that, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They're paying. You know, the marriage can cost anywhere from twenty to fifty thousand dollars US a day. Uh, costs about five to seven dollars per head per day to have them standing in the export yards um, waiting for export. And there's a whole lot of flow-ons um, of, uh, of people who just aren't without work. So I, I was in Darwin last week and drove past RTA's depot, and there was a lot of trucks not moving. And you think oh, that's a lot of drivers not getting income, and and uh, so in both Indonesia and Australia, there was a, a lot of people that were out of work uh, for uh, for six or seven weeks that weren't expecting it. And so the permits have arrived. 
and exports Absolutely. are underway. I, I see the Nine Eagles already left Darwin. It's on its way to Jakarta. How busy are you expecting this period sort of between now and Ramadan? Look, I think it'll be pretty pretty busy. There's a, a strong demand from importers in Indonesia to get heavy cattle that they can slaughter reasonably quickly. Um, the cattle have had uh, six or seven weeks without high concentrate feeds in Indonesia and they've been on northern Australian grass. It doesn't have as good a weight gain. So slaughter cattle are in strong demand. Um, there's a few issues to, to work through with cut roads and the usual wet season challenges that we have. But uh, if, there's, uh, if there's demand there, uh, exporters and producers have always been able to find livestock in northern Australia to supply Indonesia. Okay, so still demand for that typical... Uh, feed a steer job but if you've got heavier cattle there's good demand for that as well yeah absolutely there's yeah normal demand for feeder cattle and and stronger demand for slaughter cattle at the moment and we're expecting to see a couple of ships uh slip to uh to townsville to uh to pick up heavier cattle uh, over the coming weeks Uh, when we say indonesia has released its import permits is there a number attached to that on how many cattle how many permits there are there was uh, circa 650,000 head of uh, cattle permits uh, applied for and, uh, and all of those have been uh, given approval. Is that more permits than cattle that could be supplied this year? Possibly. We're six weeks behind um, and we're facing a pretty good season in much of Australia, which is different to the forecast that we all had uh, at the end of last year. So it, it might make uh, supply a little bit uh, a little bit harder. Um, but uh, yeah, the, we're also seeing some improved economic conditions in Indonesia um, since, uh, since COVID and then the kill off of uh, some of the herd due to exotic disease. So there's a requirement for more live cattle there, so hopefully we Australia can meet the, the demand this year. And as you've mentioned before, Troy Setter, it wasn't just the live cattle trade waiting for permits. There were many other commodities waiting as well, including Australian box beef. What have you heard? As of Saturday morning, box beef permits still hadn't been released, according to Indonesian media. There was uh, some some delays in exactly how many tonnes were going to be issued. There was about 450,000 tonnes applied for versus last year's 155,000 tonne realisation. This year they're expecting 145,000 tonnes of permits to be issued Um, and then uh, box beef importers would need to go back to the Ministry of Trade and ask for more permits if... um, if they were successful in fulfilling that 145,000 tonnes. We've certainly heard of shortages in Indonesia for, with Australian and, and US box beef in particular, and for high-quality grain-fed and Wagyu beef uh, into restaurants, there's been some real shortages and, and restaurants not being able to get uh, that high-quality beef on the table. So how are you feeling about the year ahead now, Troy Setter? I look pretty confident, Matt. Um, I think you know, we've got some good seasons so far in uh, in Australia in most areas. Unfortunately, there's a few dry patches in western Queensland and in the Kimberley, but hopefully they fill in over the next uh, six to eight weeks. Um, and we're seeing um, you know, some good demand out of Indonesia, Vietnam's strengthening back again, and then for box beef markets, um, whether it's the Middle East or uh, or North America, we're certainly seeing some good uh, good demand starting to, to grow uh, in those markets and some real supply challenges coming out of the US as their herd is at record low and their production is expected to be at record low this year. 
That's Troy Setter, the Chief Executive of the Consolidated Pastoral Company. CPC's got a bunch of stations across the north and also some feedlots in Indonesia. And our top story today is that the permits have finally arrived. The import permits for 2024 have been released. In terms of prices, I'm told feeder steers to Indonesia via the Darwin port are getting around $3.20 to $3.40 a kilo. So that's a significant increase on what Territory cattle were getting in October of last year. Remember, the price fell to around $2.60 a kilo. So at that current price, you're talking about an increase of about 30%. That is decent stuff. Over in Queensland, it's expected their first live export shipment to Indonesia will sail next week. The Galloway Express, it is en route to Townsville as we go to air this afternoon. And according to local livestock agent Liam Kirkwood, cattle are being sourced already there in North Queensland with a focus on heavier animals. Permits released on Friday afternoon late. Um, exporters had already been active in the marketplace discussing with agents um, if the permits were to be released, whether or not cattle would be around. So um, they acted fairly swiftly on the release of those permits. And I believe that the first boatload um, has been filled and is expected to go out of to Marshall in Charters Towers the end of next week and, and go out after that. What kind of an article are they after? Uh, There is a preference on heavier cattle, so probably the medium weight feeder cattle over 380 kilos uh, and right up to probably 600 kilos. So that's their preference at the moment, just obviously with the delay in getting these permits out. um, And obviously they do have a deadline with their festivals overseas that they will be needing to do short fed programs rather than long fed programs to have those cattle uh, in suitable slaughter condition for their religious festivals. Um, So I think that's why the preference is for the heavy cattle at the moment, but we do anticipate that the the orders for the lighter cattle will come out in the coming months. What kind of prices are they paying for those heavier cattle first up? Uh, All prices are over $3, you know, so um, for steers, um, you're anywhere for sort of that $3.10 to probably $3.30 for most of your steers on these early orders and heifers $2.60 to $2.80. So they're very competitive prices at the moment in the market. How do you then see the year unfolding? You say that there will be hopefully demand for those lighter cattle. This is more what Queenslanders look to supply to overseas. Is that is that fair to say? I think so, especially in our local area here where we're pretty much a breeder area. Um, medium weight cattle are readily available at the moment just because there is a big hangover of cattle from last year. A lot of the cattle that will be going on this earlier shipment by rights in a normal year would have gone out as lightweight feeders at the end of last year. But just due to the season we had at the end of last year in the market conditions, a lot of people sat on those cattle and held them. So obviously they've come out the other side of Christmas much heavier and people are now looking to trade them for cash flow. And, and that's why a lot of these medium weight cattle have been presented to the boats and orders have filled So you're hoping business as usual from this point now that permits have been released for Indonesia? Definitely. It's a big step in the right direction for the northern cattlemen. We're probably much the same as the people over in the Territory. Uh, We're still pretty wet here and and still probably a month away from first round musters starting to to marshal cattle together for those live export orders. But it is uh, everyone's breathing a sigh of relief that a lot of those cattle that have been held over from last year have now got a home and they'll be able to be traded out of the system before first round cattle come on the market in 2024. As livestock agent Liam Kirkwood speaking to Amy Phillips, so 
The Townsville Port expecting to ship out next week, bound for Indonesia. As mentioned, one's already left Darwin Port. The Nine Eagles sailed out on the weekend. It's on its way to Jakarta. And we understand the Brahman Express, it's expected to load up and head out on Wednesday from Darwin Port. So the industry getting back on track. As mentioned, it's not just the live export trade that now has its permits to Indonesia. Australia's table grape industry has also received permits for some varieties to resume exports. Australian Table Grape Association's Chief Executive Jeff Scott says it's good to see progress, but the issue for the table grape sector is not completely resolved. Prior to the Indonesian election, the Minister of Trade opened up the import permits and quotas and some importers were able to get, not their full quota, but a number of import permits and quotas which enabled trade to commence, which was thankful for us because Indonesia is an extremely important market to us. It's our second biggest export market. It uh, takes up probably close to $100 million worth of products and it caused a lot of anxiety and angst amongst our growers because they needed to send fruit and they weren't able to do so until just recently. What, what's happening now? What's the response from, from growers and exporters? The good thing is that we're now exporting to Indonesia and we've probably got maybe 200 containers on the water right now yet to arrive in Indonesia, but at least the imports have started over there, which is a big plus. The election is now over, so hopefully the Indonesian government uh, gets back to their business of governing and they'll issue the RIPHs, which is the import licence, and the additional quotas that uh, need to be issued and things get back to normal. Well, it sounds like there's a bit of relief then in the amongst table grape growers if those permits have now been issued. Is that the feeling that you're hearing from people? No, there's still a few concerns because the full amount of the quotas have not been issued yet and perhaps not all importers have received the import port permits or quotas, only some have. So, as, as mentioned, we're hoping that the, um, the Indonesian governments get back to the business of, of issuing these annual licences uh, very quickly and we can uh, go back to our normal trade with Indonesia and future years as well. Are there any lessons that we can learn from this experience for, for the future? Look, there's no lessons to be learned. It's just the process that the Indonesian government goes through on an annual basis, as mentioned. Um, we just have to hope that um, there's no hiccups in future years where the importers apply for their import licence and quotas in November, December, so they're ready to start importing on the 1st of uh, January. Uh, there's, there's only been one hiccup in the past where that causes some problems, but the last two or three years has been very good. That is Jeff Scott, who's the boss of the Australian Table Grape Association, speaking to Elsie Kennedy. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Hi, I'm Nicola Hanrahan. I live in Darwin and I'm a researcher at CDU. I listen to the Country Hour on my way to work. The Northern Territory's Shadow Minister for Agribusiness, Josh Burgoyne, has confirmed that he's been charged over a car crash in Darwin last year. The CLP's member for Braitling made a short statement to media this morning and took no questions. Let's have a listen to that. In August last year, my wife and I were involved in a traffic accident. Police, fireys and ambulance attended the scene. At that time, I was told those taken to hospital were as a matter of precaution. I am thankful my wife, who was 38 weeks pregnant at the time, was unharmed. 
Since then, I had not heard anything further about the accident and had no reason to believe there would be any actions taken. Last week, I was called by police indicating I would likely be charged in relation to the accident. For the first time today, I have now been charged with careless driving causing serious harm under the Traffic Act. I will now follow the process as anyone would having been involved in a traffic accident. I've sought legal advice and it's important that as the matter is before the courts, I don't speak further on the events of the accident. I would like to thank everyone who has supported me and my family during this time. Fortunately, I can't take any questions, but thank you for your time today. That is Josh Burgoyne, the member for Braitling, the Territory's Shadow Minister for Agribusiness, confirming he's been charged with careless driving causing serious harm. The ABC understands the maximum penalty for that charge is $7,000 or 18 months imprisonment. Pick up the March issue of Gardening Australia magazine for expert advice on growing bulbs. See inspiring garden makeovers, five ways to create a veggie bed and learn about she-oaks and mid-season apples. An inorganic gardener, small gum trees for urban gardens, tips for success with garlic, plus attract wildlife to your backyard and the key to healthy soil. Gardening Australia and Organic Gardener, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Just repeating, there is a severe weather warning in place this afternoon for people in parts of the Gregory and Tenamai districts. This weather warning is focused mostly on heavy rainfall as ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln makes its way across the north. It has crossed the border and is now into the Kimberley. But according to the Bureau... Heavy rainfall, which may lead to flash flooding, is forecast for the northern Tenamai and southern Gregory districts, most likely this evening, Monday evening, and continuing into Tuesday. And it says six hourly rainfall totals between 60 to 100 millimetres and 24 hourly rainfall totals of up to 150 millimetres are possible. And the Bureau not ruling out isolated falls reaching up to 200 millimetres. Woo, that's a lot of rain. In the second half of the program, you'll be hearing from the good people at Phillip Creek Station to the north of Tennant Creek. They've had over 200 millimetres in the gauge from this system and potentially a lot more to come for those areas near the WA border. We will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. As always, if you have a question for the Bureau, send it through on that text line 0487 Double nine one zero five seven. G'day, my name is Floyd. Yeah, I work in the Spanish mackerel fishery and in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I love what I do and love my job. And you're listening to the Country Hour. The new boss of a resources company, which plans to start a large rare earths project in Central Australia, says the project is ready to reach its next stage. Although admits it still needs to attract. A lot more capital. Arafura's new managing director, Daryl Kazubo, says the Nolans Bore Project, 120 k's to the north of Alice, has recently locked in a gas supply agreement. It also has road access, water, and a workers' camp was getting built. We're really getting Arafura ready for the next phase, which is project execution 
and into operations. And that's where my background has been. So particularly when I was with uh, BHP and uh, Orica, uh, I spent a lot of time running, you know, complex plants like the Nolans project will have and also building uh, projects. So by way of example, um, I built a new mine and I ran Olympic Dam for a while. And if you look at Olympic Dam in South Australia, it's similar to the Nolans projects. Uh, it's a complex process. And in fact, many of the process steps at Olympic Dam are, are similar to what we will have with the, with the Nolans project. So I bring that um, operational project execution um, skills as we go into the next phase. Is there anything that you're thinking of changing or is it going to be pretty much smooth sailing the same as it was? Yeah, so we're not changing our plan at all, right? So again, I've been on the board for over two years. Um, so we're not changing the plan. It's really about delivering on the plan that we've got. Where is the project up to at the moment? What does it look like on the ground? Yeah, so the project's in a very good space, right? So we've done um, a lot of engineering, uh, so probably more than what you typically have at this point. So that stands us in good stead. We've spent over $40 million on site on what we call early works. So that means as soon as we've got the funding, we can start construction activities. Uh, we've got access to water, we've got road access, we've got a camp that's been built. So we really are ready to go on the site as soon as we've got uh, financing. And and that's really the last piece is securing financing. So that's securing uh, debt, which is well advanced, securing offtakes uh, for our uh, rare earth products. Uh, and that's largely in place. We've got a bit more to do and securing the, um, you know, the, the final equity to, to um, get the project underway. How much money left are you waiting for and how far off do you see it before you'll have that amount of money? Yeah, so good, <laughs> good question. So the project is, um, is, is around just under $1.7 billion and about 50% um, uh, will come from debt and about 50% will come from equity um, and on the debt side um, we're progressing well on that so we expect to uh, secure that in the next couple of months or so and then that enables us to then raise the equity which we expect to raise by around the middle of this year. That is Daryl Kazubo, who's the new chief executive of Arafura Rare Earths. He was speaking there to Victoria Ellis. And as we go to air this afternoon, shares in Arafura are up by 4.8%. Across the territory on the ABC, this is the country hour. Now, the ABC's Four Corners program is tonight looking at the power of Australia's supermarket duopoly and whether consumers and farmers are getting a good deal. There's no doubt we are paying higher prices than we should. Do you think your profits are excessive? No. Cheated at the checkout. How would you categorise a special? A little bit like a drug? The cost of living with Coles and Woolworths. He says that's the definition of price gouging. It's like they've got their hand on your throat and just letting you breathe. The insiders speaking out. It's a lot of intimidation. You're at their mercy. I think I'm done, guys. Yeah. You're walking out, really? Four Corners, Monday, ABC TV and ABC iView. 
Yeah, that's the boss of Woolworths walking out of that interview with ABC Four Corners. Four Corners says it will reveal the tactics used by Coles and Woolies. That's tonight on ABC TV. G'day, my name's Trevor Derling. I work for Parent Water and you're listening to The Country Hour. And for those who missed our program on Friday because of the cricket, well, you missed a lot, including news that... For the first time, a GM banana has been given approval to be grown and consumed here in Australia. Here's a little bit of Professor James Dale telling us about that. At the moment uh, in Australia, Panama disease tropical racial is fairly well under control. The biosecurity arrangements are really limiting its, um, its, its spread terrifically. However, that may change. Uh, so this is really our our safety net. Uh, we, we, we know now that we've got a Cavendish banana that is very close to immune to, to tropical racefall. So Cavendish is not going to disappear. So that's, that, that's the situation at the present time. And as I said, if tropical racefall really gets going in, in Queensland and starts to really hurt our industry, then we've got this banana ready to go. Professor James Dale, have you tasted one? No because we weren't allowed to under our licence. Right. But I can tell you right now we've been on to our, um, uh, our manager of our field trial site and said, any of the bunches on those bananas, leave them, we're coming up. Yeah, that was Professor James Dale speaking to the Country Hour on Friday. That's really big news for the global banana industry. This GM banana, it has a tolerance to Panama disease tropical race 4, and now... It's got the approval from the federal government to be grown. It can be consumed now in Australia. There's a few of these bananas that have been part of the trial right here in the Northern Territory. I know producer Dan the Man Fitzgerald and I are hoping, we're hoping, we might get allowed to uh, sneak out to the farm and try one of these GM bananas for ourselves. Uh, If you missed our coverage on Friday because of the cricket or for whatever reason, There's a story up on our website right now if you search for NT Country Hour and you can learn all about it. Uh, We've got to go to the newsroom because it's one o'clock. See you back here in five minutes for a chat with the Weather Bureau. How you going? It's uh, Brian. I'm the local tow truck driver out at Daly Waters and the fixer of broken things out here. And welcome everyone to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln spent the weekend slowly crossing the Northern Territory, heading west. And along the way, it delivered some pretty significant rainfall totals to stations. Amazingly wet. We had um, 157 mil, followed by 37 mil, and it's still still raining today. Yeah, that's Catherine, who is at Phillip Creek Station this afternoon to the north of Tennant Creek. Around 200 millimetres in the gauge there. Uh, you'll be hearing from Catherine and also the team out at Pungalina Station in just a moment on the Country Hour. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Uh, Billy, over the weekend, the 72-hour period, what were some of the most significant rainfall totals? Well, top of the list was Centre Island um, with 226 millimetres. Uh, so obviously most of that fell on Friday with the sort of landfall of the cyclone. Uh, the other notable one, Tennant Creek, with 200 millimetres. Um, yeah, quite a significant fall for the Barkley. 
Now, Kiana and Favink Range, they've had 142 and 130, respectively. They're in the MacArthur River catchment. Rabbit Flats at 124 millimetres. Um, mind you, 100 of that, 108 or 109, fell in the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And some other notable ones, Adelaide River stations had 66, and then everywhere else has sort of been less than 50 in the three days. So Daily Waters, 37, and the Daily River Police Station, 35. And there is a severe weather warning for heavy rainfall still in place for people in parts of the Gregory and Tenamai districts, and the Bureau's website suggests there could be some seriously big rain on that border country in the next 24 hours or so, yeah? Yeah, there could be. So the X-Cyclone, it's right on the WA border at the moment between Larger Manu and Halls Creek. Um, it looks like it's starting to run out of gas a little bit. Like it doesn't look as strong as it did this time yesterday, but it's still a big weather system. Um, yeah, and we do think as we move into this afternoon and overnight, um, those thunderstorms are likely to increase as they sort of wrap into the low. So yeah, the severe weather warning is in place for, for the, the heavy rainfall. Um, and yeah, potentially could be yeah, very heavy rainfall. Yeah, the language on the Bureau is isolated 24-hour falls reaching up to 200 millimetres are possible. Now, is it possible that kind of rain could fall into the Victoria River catchment? Uh, It's possible. I mean, yeah, it's in our severe weather warning. Mm. Um, We're probably thinking it's more likely south of Larger Manu, um, those really big totals. Um, So on the southern side of the low, but... The good folks um, at Superjack might get a... Big bit of rain. Yeah, yeah. But um, still, look, our message to um, the public and to emergency services is, you know, the, the Upper Vic is potentially still in the firing line. So, um, yeah, it's certainly a setup where there could be some heavy falls in the, in the Vic River catchment. And um, obviously the, the catchment's very wet and, and rivers will respond quickly. So, um, yeah, not only... A, is the Vic River in the severe weather warning? It's in the, the flood watch. And, you know, if we see enough evidence for it, we'll, we'll be issuing flood warnings as well. What's the likelihood of this system reforming once it gets off the Kimberley coast? Yeah, we're pretty good. Um, so it'll be slow moving sort of near the border today and tomorrow. Um, and then it's going to sort of pick up speed and move uh, westwards getting off the Kimberley, the West Kimberley sort of Wednesday, Thursday, and then, you know, we're sort of saying there's a, there's a high chance of it developing later in the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and, yeah, a coastal crossing seems um, sort of quite plausible west of Port Hedland. So, yeah, certainly for, for those folk, mm-hmm. need to be aware, um, sort of suggesting it could be anywhere from a, a Category 2 up to a, a Category 4 strength Gee. cyclone. And then for those in Central Australia, is there an opportunity to get rainfall as it tracks east? But yeah, n- uh, no, is the short answer. Okay. I mean, that's not what we're expecting. The, the remnants do sort of curve back south into southern WA, um, at this stage, we're expecting that to just pass south of the Northern Territory. Got you. The week ahead for those in Central Australia, what can they expect? Oh, uh, look, I mean, 
southern parts are not going to get too much rain from this system. We've got a few storms popping up across the, the southern Barkley at the moment and sort of towards Tea Tree. But sort of once you're at Alice Springs and further south, it's um, getting a bit of humid uh, humidity through the, the, the skies there. So it feels a bit humid, but it's just not quite enough to produce much rainfall. So... Uh, cloudy conditions, but um, yeah, not expecting much rain, and, and that means um, still temperatures very hot, so high 30s to low 40s persisting until uh, a cool change comes through on the weekend. Okay, and it looks like there's a line of storms about to crash into Pine Creek. Can I selfishly ask if Darwin can expect any decent <laughs> rain this week? Uh, yesterday was putrid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the humidity was right up there. Today's um, the same. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of rain around today, uh, unfortunately. But overnight, um, we expect a few showers to pass through. And just the low being where it is, we'll probably see a, a slight pickup in the shower activity tomorrow. But but all in all, we've kind of we've lost the connection to the monsoon, and then the, the <laughs> cyclone is sort of pulling the weather away from Darwin as well. Goodness me. All right, then. Thanks so much for your time, Billy. No worries. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. It's 11 past one. Just before the news, I was telling you about this GM banana that's now gained regulatory approval to be grown and consumed by humans in Australia. It's a big story. These, these trials, this research have been going on for years, and now it's got that final tick. And I got a text here from Des at the Little Roper Stock Camp. Des, you should be a rural reporter. This is good stuff. Des is proper tuning in. So we heard from Professor James Dale that because of all of the regulations around GM, they weren't allowed to taste these bananas until now. And Des goes, what? If they can't taste the bananas, what if they taste like durians? I would have thought taste would be important when doing this research, says Des. He's spot on. He's spot on. Is there, is there another way through research so they're able to gain a sense that it's going to taste just like a Cavendish? I don't know, Des, but that is well pointed out. You should be a real reporter. Um, a few other messages here to share with you regarding extropical cyclone Lincoln, and in particular, the lack of a Tennant Creek radar. Robert has uh, sent me a message this afternoon. I'll share that with you. He says, Matt, it's just criminal that the permanent radar was removed from Tennant Creek and never replaced. This is despite promises to the contrary. It's essential to assist pastorals and travellers, says Robert. And on this topic, uh, Fiona Lake on the weekend tweeted, imagine if there was a bomb weather radar in the middle of the Northern Territory. Just imagine. We'd be able to see the current rain around Tennant Creek. Oh, wait, there used to be a radar. What happened? Remote Australia deserves respect and it could save lives. Tiny little Victoria has seven radars. Where is the one for Tennant Creek? Good question. Hello, my name is President Mary Allen and I'm from Samoa. I'm lo I love mangoes, I love picking mangoes, I love to work here in Australia. You listen to uh, Gentry Allen. Yeah, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln as it moved across the territory, it brought some decent rain with it. 
Amanda Waugh is the caretaker at Pungalina Station between Borroloola and the Queensland border, so it was sort of right in Lincoln's path. When we spoke to Amanda on Friday afternoon, at that stage they had about 90 millimetres in the rain gauge, uh, but Amanda told Victoria Ellis that they got a lot more rain after that. Yeah, so just after I spoke to Matt, we um, we ended up with 147 mils from Cyclone Lincoln. We were very fortunate that it's it kind of most of that fell on us. Um, our neighbours up at Calvert Hills had only had at that stage about 40 mils all up. Um, and then we had some sunshine. It wasn't too windy. There was no damage from Cyclone, which was which was fantastic. But yesterday we had um, 99 mils dropped on us in a localised storm that was just over our catchment. Um, so we had 99 mils and our neighbours up at Calvert Hills had 120 mils. Um, so then we were just watching the river rise. Um, it took a, took a while, but it came up and touched the concrete at the bottom of the house here. Gosh, what were you thinking while you guys were inside the house watching that water come up? Um, we, we, were, we were wondering, wanting to see how high it would come Always a bit of a, um, an eye opener to see how that much water will affect it down here. Um, we were very lucky that it didn't come up any higher than the concrete. But yeah, just sitting here watching it was um, it was yeah it was good. It wasn't scary or, or anything, but yeah, it was nice to see some water coming down the um, down the river. Anybody fishing in the in the from the house? Well. <laughs> The kids asked if they could um, fish off the veranda, so that was um, that was a bit of fun um, for them yesterday. I bet. <laughs> and what do you actually do when there is that much water around? How do you keep the little ones entertained and make sure everything is safe in the house? Oh, I guess there's not much you can really do because once the water comes up that high at the house, at the back of the house, it's already around another two sides, so three sides of the house surrounded by water. Um, so the kids just stay upstairs. We're very lucky and fortunate. We have got a pool gate on our veranda gate. Um, so the little one who's three can't get downstairs. Um, the girls just kept themselves occupied yesterday playing games and we just did a few like, wet season jobs washing down the veranda and that while it was wet. So, um, yeah, that definitely kept us busy for the day. What do you think the land is going to look like after that water recedes? Is it going to make the grass spring up or, or what's going to happen? Um, it'll be, it's obviously going to take a little while for it to really kick into the growth stage, um, but it definitely responds very well to it. So I think, you know, this type of area and the grass that it is, it responds really well to that amount of water. That is Amanda Waugh at a very wet Pungalina station. Tropical Cyclone Lincoln was downgraded to a tropical low soon after it crossed the coast near Pungalina. The system then headed southwest across the northern Barkley and then into the Tanami region. Phillip Creek Station, just north of Tennant Creek, it received around 200 millimetres and it was still raining when owner Catherine Warby had a chat to Dan Fitzgerald this morning. Yeah, it was amazingly wet. We had um, 157 mil followed by 37 mil and it's still, yeah, still, still raining today. Just constant, yeah, constant, nice, gentle rain all day and all night. Yeah, the same this morning. It's um, a bit heavier this morning, actually, than it was yesterday. So, yeah, very lucky. We've had um, 
220 mil for February and we've had 560 for January. So we've had, yeah, 780 mil since the start of January, which has been great because we had a huge amount of bushfires last year. I think we lost about 60% of Phillip Creek and about 30 or 40% of Muckety. So, yeah, this rain will just be, yeah, the grass is just unbelievable after those fires. Yeah, tell us about that. What does it mean getting that bushfire affected area back to back to something usable? It just means that we, I mean, the end of last year, we just weren't quite sure what we were going to do, um, especially at Phillip Creek because so much of it was burnt. If we didn't have any rain over the summer, um, we would have had to have started to yeah shift, shift some cattle around <clears throat> and. Um, yeah, but now we definitely won't have to do that. And, yeah, hopefully it will just mean this year we've got nice, fat, happy cattle at both places. So, yeah, really lucky. Yeah, it's great to hear. And the, the 700 mule or so, how does that fare with your long-term average? So that's more than our average already. <laughs> the start of last year we had um, the same. I think we actually ended up last wet with about a 1,000 mil. Um, which is yeah far higher than what we than what our average is. Our average rainfall is about 450 mil a year. So last year we received double that, and we're well on the way to receiving it again, which is great. We'll just have to do some do a few road repairs around the place, but um, definitely worth yeah definitely worth fixing the roads um, for that sort of rain after those fires. And a few full dams, hopefully? Yes, they are. Um, yeah, last time we looked, which was about a week ago, um, they were absolutely chock-a-block then. So, yeah, so very lucky. That's great. And uh, I imagine you haven't been moving too far from the homestead over the last couple of days? No, not at all. We did get a chance yesterday morning to go for a bit of a walk, not too far, and just have a look. And um, But, yeah, that's it. It's just been, yeah, just been raining, yeah, nonstop. So feeling very lucky at the moment after, as I say, the end of last year when it was very hot and very burnt. Have you heard much from your neighbours? Because it seems like the low was fairly concentrated. It wasn't that widespread. Yeah, so I think um, Tennant Creek has had good rain and I think Helen Springs and Brunchilly have had really good rain. So, yeah, I think we're just, yeah, just in the right spot, um, that sort of area, yeah, for the heavier rains. That's Catherine Warby at Phillip Creek Station near Tennant Creek speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. And Dan was showing me some pictures earlier on of what the country is looking like around Phillip Creek at the moment and the green grass. Oh, I would eat it myself. The country has responded so beautifully after those horrific bushfires. It's just beautiful to see. 21 past one, you are tuned into the country hour. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it before, the saying, we're not playing for sheep stations. My mum used to whip that out a fair bit. We're not playing for sheep stations, Matt. Well, up next on the country hour, a tale about a WA sheep station that was won and lost in a game of poker. That's how the story goes. How true is it? We'll talk about it after this fantastic and very appropriate song. You never-
with count your money when you're sitting at the table there'll be time enough to count when the deal is done oh how good kenny rogers on a monday and that song is very appropriate for this next story the old saying is we're not playing for sheep stations well, according to folklore in WA's Gascoigne region, a sheep station was literally won and lost in a game of poker. In Carnarvon, the local story is, and so many people believe it, that the 100,000 hectare Quabba station changed hands back in the 1930s after a game of poker. According to the tale, five pastoralists sat down for that fateful game but is this story actually true? Reporter Xander Sapsworth-Collis takes a look. Gascoigne farming folklore talks of a legendary card game over a sheep station, but Neil Baston heard the tale much later. I had heard, had heard the rumour, um, don't quite know when, that, um, that the, you know, the station was won on a won at the poker game and... Um, but it wasn't until probably the 70s that we actually got actual uh, a photo of the um, hand of cards. As the story goes, Neil's grandfather, George Baston, won Quabba Station in WA's Gascoigne region in a poker game in 1933 after the owner, Charles Fane, had wagered his pastoral lands after going bust. That's what Martin Baston, Neil's brother, was also told. In that particular time of the year, they may have been all playing cards in what became to be known as the Carnarvon Club. There were most of the pastoralists, uh, and there was a lot more of them in those days, don't forget. And um, they were playing cards, and they quite often did this, remembering there was, wasn't much else for entertainment, I guess, if you're sitting around waiting in November and probably a bit warm. The five pastoralists played their game at the local clubhouse. The historic hand, which had a 1 in 650,000 chance of being pulled, now sits at the Carnarvon One Mile Jetty Museum. And one of the cards features the signatures of all five players. As I understand it, they had a they had a, um, a royal routine flush, and that happens to be the the king of diamonds, the queen of diamonds, uh, jack of diamonds, ace of diamonds, and the ten of diamonds. And it was extremely rare. But is the story true? Neil admits card playing was a big part of his family history. My father certainly wasn't a card player or gambler, but my grandfather, who's uh, in that, the one there, George Henry Sutton, he certainly was a card player. Uh, Great-grandfather was certainly a card player in um, Geraldton. It was said he could shuffle cards quicker than the shifting sands of Geraldton. But unfortunately, a few key details undermine the truthfulness of the tale. The game was happened in 1933, and that the um, uh, Bastard and French bought Quabra in 1921. So the the years don't exactly line up. And then if you look at the names on the cards of the sign, I can't see um, I can't see any Charlie Fane. Baston, McLeod, and Shellcross are the only identifiable signatures on the card. The other two are indecipherable. Both brothers think the game likely became famous because of the Royal Flush. And over the years, the tale has evolved into something even more dramatic that's been retold over and over in paddocks and pubs across the Gascoigne. It is, yeah, it's a good story, but unfortunately, it doesn't, doesn't quite ring true. 
Oh, that's Neil Baston speaking there to Xander Sapsworth Collars. And that wraps up today's Country Hour. I'll leave you with a text from Al in Humpty Doo. And I love this. Only the Country Hour would get a text like this. He says, Matt, ploughing in cattle and horse dung, keeping the microbes and worms happy. The sunflower seedlings will love it. And he's listening to the Country Hour. Thanks, Al. Keep it rural.